Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel for the next installment of our podcast series with UBS Asset Management, House Call, Talking Equity Markets with UBS Asset Management. For this month's episode, I am joined by Jeff Hans, Senior Portfolio Manager for the Houseview Equity Portfolios, as well as Dominique Shager, UBS Asset Management's Senior Equity Investment Specialist. So with that, Jeff, Dom, welcome back. Dom, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's conversation. Thank you, Dan. As always, we appreciate you having us on the show. As you mentioned, joining me on this month's call, we have Jeff Hans. Jeremy is taking well-deserved time off. So to get us started, Jeff, let's start with some macro overview. In last week's inflation report, July CPI increased 3.2% year over year coming in higher than the Fed long-term target of 2%. One way we have seen the Fed try to tame inflation is by raising the federal funds rate from nearly zero a year and a half ago to about 55 earlier this month. In your view, what is the economic impact of the higher rates and the stickier inflation? Thanks, Tom. Uh, it's, it's a good leading question, and thanks for having me on, on the call today. Happy to jump in for Jeremy. Um, so I think... Yeah, to your to your question, which I think is an important one, is you know why, why haven't we seen any any real effect from north of 500 basis points of rate hikes? Um, you know, really over the past uh, almost 18 months. Yeah, that's kind of the million dollar question. That's something that that we've been talking about quite a bit as a team about. Um, and so, you know, I think there's one theory which I, I think is kind of interesting and in why the economy has been. Um, just fairly resilient through, through, you know, the, the Fed rate hikes, um, you know, which is really related to the housing market as a, in the context of, of interest rate hikes. And so historically, one of the greatest areas of rate sensitivity <clears throat> that tends to seize up sharply after rate hikes is housing, obviously. Um, higher mortgage rates tends to drive, um, you know, significant softness there. And while we saw some weakness in the housing market over the past year, trends have actually leveled off a bit more recently. And so I, I think there's some uniqueness of this housing market that, that's somewhat of a key factor behind that. Um, you know, when you look at housing supply, most of it's owned by adults 55 and up, and, and a large chunk of these folks refied back in 20 and 21 at historically low rates. And so these are people that really don't want to list their homes for sale. So you've got a really tight inventory uh, today in, in the housing market. Um, and, and as a result of their refis, their, their debt service ratios are near historic lows and locked in for a long period of time. So there's not as much rate sensitivity among that, that cohort, which accounts for such a large chunk of the housing market. Um, you know, the, the other part as to why I think the economy has held up and you sort of alluded to this in your question, is the fact that C, uh, CPI or inflation has really been moderating from its peak over the past year. CPI topped out uh, at about 9% last June, and, and you know, to your point, it registered around 3% in July. The core number is closer to 4%, you know, still down sharply, but, but above kind of where the Fed w- would like it to be. Um, you know, that said, I, I'd say that... Um, there, there's clearly, clearly been a lot of progress on, on, you know, from the Fed in terms of their ability to drive inflation lower. Um, and as it relates to interest rates, you know, I'd say we're probably in the very late innings of the rate hike cycle at this point. And so, you know, with all of that said, the labor market's been very resilient. 
Um, importantly, the direction of real wage growth, which is wages less inflation, has actually been trending higher, and it, it actually turned positive um, just recently for the first time in a long time. And so if inflation continues to fall, wages move up, I think that gives consumers some more disposable income, you know, which, which could have a nice benefit on consumption growth later this year. Um, and so, look, I think all of these are really important dynamics that are playing out right now and, you know, frankly, have been important factors in sustaining the economic resilience that we've seen. I would say, coming back to your initial question, you know, what does it mean going forward? Could could we see things soften? Yeah, that, that risk is still out there, of course, um, and we track a lot of the soft data, which can be leading indicators for future um, future economic activity, but we're just not really seeing it in the hard data yet. And again, if, if, if wages remain supportive of the consumer, um, you know, that's something that, you know, may lead to more of a soft landing versus an outright recession at this point. So staying on the topic of future indicators, with over 90% of the S&P 500's market cap having reported, Q2 earnings seasons coming to a close. Can you maybe provide some insights of what you learned based on the calls you heard? Sure, sure. Happy to. Um, you know, I'd say first at a high level, <clears throat> we've begun to see a bit more stability in earnings. And so, you know, if you look back at, at the second quarter, earnings growth excluding energy, you know, which is lapping an incredibly tough comparison, um, was actually modestly positive after three straight quarters of declines. Um, and if you actually, <coughs> excuse me, if you actually look at revenue growth, it was about 4% positive, excluding energy, which was, um, you know, probably more, more relevant to be completely honest. The revenue is certainly a good, a good signal of, of uh, overall uh, business health. Um, I think importantly, if you look at future earnings revisions, they're actually holding up really well. So the rate of revisions for the third quarter um, is, is better than it has been historically coming out of the second quarter. So, you know, I think revision data certainly not uh, disappointing quite as much. And, you know, even you look back historically, it's, it's holding up fairly well, which is a good sign. Um, as it relates to some notable takeaways in the quarter, I, I think there's a few things I'd, I'd highlight. Um, First, in financials, I, I think there's some interesting trends going on there. Um, you know, we work for a financial organization, so I always like to, you know, talk a little bit about um, financials. Um, you know, companies like J.P. Morgan commented that they're probably over-earning a bit on net interest income and credit, um, and that's something that's kind of interesting, right? You've had a, a big uplift in, in interest rates, and that's certainly flowing through to better net interest income for companies like J.P. and, and others. Um, Jamie Dimon, their CEO, commented that uh, the likelihood of sustainability there is probably low. Um, and yet, when you look at areas like capital markets, um, so companies like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, uh, some, some smaller boutiques, they, they've been seeing meaningful pressure in their business over the past 18 months. They all noted that uh, they're starting to see some green shoots in their M&A and IB businesses. And so, you know, when you think about financial markets broadly, you know, banks having over-earned and, and arguably uh, some of the brokerage uh, or, or investment bank firms having under-earned, you know, we could be close to somewhat of a turning point in each of those segments within financial. So still early there, but that's something that we're, we're, we're watching closely. Um, I think there's some other interesting mega trends that, I, that I'd like to highlight. I think that's having some broad impacts across various sectors. Um, in financials, I, I, you know, we continue to see this trend of reshoring, of electrification, 
of fiscal stimulus geared towards things like the build-out and renovation of infrastructure. These have been very powerful catalysts for a lot of companies. And you know, the, in, in, in a sector such as industrials, which tends to be more cyclical, it's proven to um, you know, more than offset any of the cyclical uh, headwinds that we've seen from, from pockets of, of economic softness here or there. Um, within technology, clearly, I think, you know, this is not a surprise, but uh, anything attached to AI just continues to see strong spending behind it. You know, that, that's a mega trend that's at least continuing through the very near term in our view, and, and we're going to continue to watch that closely going forward. And then finally, within the healthcare world, obesity drugs. I think what, we've, what we began to see a little bit more this quarter as it relates to those uh, obesity drugs is the knock-on effects within healthcare. So areas and health insurers were, were a bit more impacted from a trading perspective, uh, not quite seeing it fundamentally, but, but you know, just from a valuation or sentiment perspective. So, yeah, I think those are some interesting megatrends, things that we're, we're watching closely, um, yeah, as we kind of head into the back half of this year. Thank you. We appreciate your takeaways. So now changing topics for a bit. Year to date, the Russell 1000 Value Index has lacked the Russell 1000 growth by a staggering 22.5%. On past calls, Jeremy has provided some insights as to some of the drivers. Could you maybe give us a refresher? Sure, sure. I, I feel like a broken record saying, you know, value has meaningfully underperformed growth. I, I've done many of these calls over the years, and other than last year, that was sort of a, a very common phrase uh, reiterated by me. Um, you know, I, I think as you kind of look back at the first half of, of this year, and we start to see a little bit more narrow leadership, or broader leadership, I should say, just in the past month or so. But in the first six months of the year, a lot of it was really just a function of the fact that you had seven mega cap tech stocks that had accounted for the majority of market returns. And, yeah, I, I attribute that really to a function of chasing the AI team, um, as, as many of these companies have exposure there. Uh, but, but also a lot of these companies just, frankly, have delivered pretty pretty solid earnings results. And so, you know, earnings resilience combined with, you know, a mega trend in AI – I think drove, you know, a lot of investor flows into into those names. <coughs> um, I'd also say investors were skittish earlier in the year over a recession, right? That narrative was, um, you know, coming out of 22 um, had certainly taken hold. And so, you know, I think what we've seen in the past, in the recent past, I should say, is that mega cap tech has really been a great place to hide out during times of, of economic turbulence. So, you know, companies like Apple and Google have essentially become the Procter and Gamble in, in that regard. And so, you know, I, I'd say that that those have certainly been the biggest drivers of, of growth our performance. Um, <clears throat> if you look at the first six months of this year, uh, growth has outperformed value by its like 24 percentage points at ending June. Um, and then, I, that, obviously, that's pretty astounding, right? If you look back historically. Um, and as you look at the valuation spread between growth and value at the end of, end of June, growth was at a, call it, almost 90% premium to value, which was near a historical peak. So massive outperformance of growth versus value this year, um, somewhat of an outlier historically, and it's led to a huge valuation disconnect between the two styles. Thank you, Jeff. I think similar to what you just mentioned, we saw last month our colleagues from the Global Wealth Management CIO office release a piece on values attractiveness. It was called History Favors Value. Can you provide your views? I think you've read the report, so just kind of curious to see what you think. I did. I thought it was a great report because it talked, it talked about the attractive merits of value. You might be a little bit biased, I know. but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, 
And so, <clears throat> look, even though even though I, I run a value portfolio, by the way, um, I, I certainly am, am pretty open and agnostic stylistically. In fact, I was sort of raised in this industry as more of a Garfi quality investor. That tends to be my my bread and butter. But but running a value portfolio, you, you certainly have to you know respect um, you know the factors that that, that you know I- impact performance here. Um, and so I, th- I thought that report was great, right? <clears throat> you know they they put. Um, you know, they put the performance gap between growth and value into context. And, and, you know, I called out the level of outperformance about 24 percentage points on a relative basis through the first six months. It's actually one of the worst six-month periods since the inception of the Russell indices going back to 1979. Um, The CIO also commented that since 1979, the value stocks underperformed by more than 15 percentage points on a six-month basis. That performance has tended to reverse. (coughs) So over the next year, you know, they've seen value stocks outperform 75% of the time by almost nine percentage points on average, which is pretty pretty substantial. Um, on a two-year basis, it's even more impressive, right? And so on a two-year basis, value stocks have beat growth 90% of the time by 24 percentage points. And so that's certainly interesting, right? And, and I tell you that we've pointed out in the past that while valuation isn't the best predictor of near-term performance, it can certainly correlate better with longer-term performance. And so just given how cheap value is relative to growth, I think there's a good argument to be made for some better relative long-term performance of value moving forward. Um, the, the other thing I'd point out, Dom, is, is as it relates to sort of the macro outlook in the near term, you know, look, if, if economic growth holds up and earnings begin to trend uh, a bit higher or revisions begin to trend a bit higher, um, yeah, I think you're probably going to see more broad-based market performance ahead. And, and I alluded to this earlier, but, you know, we've, we've really began to see this. So over the last month, value has narrowly outperformed growth uh, in July and, and certainly holding up uh, fairly well in, in August, too. And so sectors such as financials, energy, materials, and industrials, those are sizable segments of the value index. They've been acting much better of late and, and probably would do well in a, in a soft landing scenario. Thank you, Jeff, and thank you for your insights. Dan, that's a wrap from us. Thank you for having us on the show. Well, Dom, Jeff, thank you again for joining our listeners for another episode of House Call, Talking Equity Markets with UBS Asset Management. We do look forward to continuing the conversation with you next month. If you, our listeners, have any questions or are looking for more information on the Houseview equity portfolios, please be sure to contact your UBS financial advisor. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. It does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any specific product or service. UBS does not provide legal or tax advice, and we would recommend listeners to obtain appropriate independent professional advice. Some of the views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Group AG or its affiliates. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. These services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide about the products or services we offer.
customer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS Group AG and is a member of FINRA and SIPC.